Welcome to the Teddy Talk Podcast. I'm Teddy Tannenbaum. Wow. In this edition, I get to talk to my old brother, Matt, who, in addition to being my very first roommate, is also one of the coolest guys I know. He's been an independent bookseller for over 40 years and still going strong. I could say if you ever go to the Berkshires in Western Mass, you should stop in at his shop in Lenox. But really, you should make the pilgrimage and visit him. He knows just about everything you'll ever want to know about books and authors. And after you speak with him for five minutes, he'll make recommendations for you that will surprise and delight you. And when other booksellers started putting coffee shops in their stores, Matt put in a wine bar. It's called Get Lit. Check it out. everybody. Welcome to the Teddy Talk podcast. I'm Teddy Tannenbaum. And if you're new to these podcasts, these are some conversations I'm having with some of the remarkable people that I've met in my life. And some of them are about leadership and some of them are just about life. Today, as always, we have a special guest. Just by, ba- by background, I have had a lifelong love affair with books being read to, reading on my own, and now reading to others. As it turned out, one of my older brothers, one of two, is a bookseller and uh, owns and operates a very unique bookstore called The Bookstore in Lenox, Massachusetts. So I'm happy to have my brother and an extraordinary bookseller here as our podcast guest today. Matt, can you believe it? Here we are. Here we are. This is pretty sweet. This is very lovely to be here with you. And this is my first podcast. I've never done anything like this before. Although I spend and have spent the last 40 years of my life talking to people every day. I hardly ever do it with a microphone in front of me. There you go. And I am very pleased to begin to think about what I'm going to tell you about life, about my life, or... Life through books, or books through life. I'm already lost. (laughs) Wait, books through life? No, life through books. I like that. I, I I have memories. I remember the, uh, the nightstand between our two beds and all the books that it held. You got me on that one. I, yeah. You know, I, do you have... There was the transistor radio, of course, for the ball games. Transistor radio. But there were books there. And I remember in particular when the Salinger books showed up. Really? First it was Catherine the Rye and then Franny and Zoe. And how old were we? Teenagers, I suppose. We're two years apart, two and a half. Two and a half years apart. You remember those books? I'm trying. I'm, I'm trying to remember what the bookcase looked like. Was it the one with a, a top shelf that was smaller, and then that uh, right. was held on by dowels, by, by right. like like four, a quarter inch dowels or something? Yeah, it was a light brown, curved around, and then there were other shelves right. and posts between. I don't remember any yeah. of the books. I do remember the first book I ever read, 
But it wasn't in that room. It was in the room before, before, before when, we, when we lived in the other side of the house, yeah. before Dad died. Yeah. And I was maybe seven years old. I think I had the mumps. And Mom brought me home a book, and I still have that book. It's a hardcover. It's a, it's a modern library edition called Best American Humorous Short Stories. And uh, every time I read a story, I made a check mark or a star by it. I made some other marks. I look at now every once in a while. I have no idea what these other marks meant. Did I read that story? I have no idea. But that's when I read Mark Twain, <clears throat> James Thurber, Dorothy Parker. I didn't understand Dorothy Parker till many years later. <laughs> I probably didn't understand Mark Twain till many years later. Uh, a Thurber, uh, the night the bed fell, the night the the night the bed fell, the night. Oh, it, no, it was a Mark Twain story, Mrs. McWilliams and the Lightning. Do you know that story? No, I don't. It's a great story. And these were funny stories. And I think this, I wonder if I had started with a serious book, would I be a serious <laughs> guy today? I don't know. <laughs> As we do anything, so we do everything. So books, we, we, I, mean, I remember being read to, I remember both of us reading, I remember us spending time, you know, reading on our own. I remember reading pieces to each other. I remember reading comic books at breakfast and lunch, not at dinner. Lunch in the old kitchen. I remember Sport Magazine, not Sports Illustrated, not so but, illustrated sport, but yeah. Sport Magazine. They were the ones that give out the Corvette to the MVP of the World Series every year. Was, was there ever a Dodger that won one? <laughs> <laughs> Teddy was a Dodger fan and I was a Yankee fan. Yeah. Cousin David the, was a Giants that's fan. That's right. So we had it all covered in New York in those days. It was difficult being a Dodgers fan uh, when you had two older brothers who were Yankees fans. Although the revenge I was late and bittersweet. Semi-sweet, I should say. <laughs> yeah, not bittersweet. Just, just, now it's just sweet. Now it's just sweet. I can't <laughs> wait to have it again. So from an early age, books, we were educated. We had the, the great opportunity to be educated. And you went into bookselling. We had a great librarian in elementary school, Miss Shorey. Miss Shorey. Yeah. At the elementary school was as beautiful... I don't know what the architecture was, uh, Tudor or something. And the library was an octagonal room. Was it our homeroom? When I came there, she said, oh, it's another Tannenbaum because of Aaron. Right. And then you got there and said, oh, another Tannenbaum. And then finally Rose, Rose got there, and I think she was really happy that there was a girl right. in the family. <laughs> so do you remember the books that you read? I remember... That I was, uh, I read the uh, serials. I read the Tom uh, Tom Swift Jr. books. I read Doctor Doolittle books. But I remember the first book that had a really strong impression on me that was independent of those was a book about Jesse James. Oh, back then you read about back Jesse then James. I read about Jesse James captured my imagination, and of course I went on to. Uh, Actually, do graduate work in Western history briefly at Col in Columbia, Missouri. In Missouri and Columbia, very briefly. Hopefully, <laughs> there's no record of it. 
We both had some careers that were very brief. And thankful for them. Move right through them. Right. Stepping stones. So I remember you got involved in books. You were working with a company, a distribution, a distribution house, I think, in D.C. where we went to college. But I'm curious, how did you get involved in being a bookseller? I met, I met a woman. That's often where it starts. I met a woman who told me that if I, if I liked the author who she saw that I was reading, who was Henry Miller, I might like his buddy Lawrence Durrell. And if I liked Lawrence Durrell and Miller, they had another buddy, Anais Nin, a French woman whom they knew. And there's only one place, I think she said the world, but I think she meant the United States, where you can find all three writers, all three of their works, and that was the Gotham Book Mart. This was, this was late in the 60s, after my college career, after my uh, boarded career with, in the Navy, and I, I walked into the Gotham Book Mart, Mart and I, on 47th Street in Manhattan. In the Diamond District. On, on the street where all the diamond merchants were. And we had family friends who had a booth in, or a couple of booths in, those, in some of those stores. I never spent any time with them. Uh, <laughs> uh, I, was the, I, I was the long-haired hippie by then, and I wasn't interested in, in, in jewelry. And I walked into the Gotham Book Mart, which had a wooden floor. Yes. And mostly hardcover books on the shelves. There were paperbacks. So this is 1969, 19, early 70s. By the time I got a job there, I didn't get a job there for uh, almost two years, 1971. I got, in June of 1971, I got a job. And it wasn't until, I think it was, the, I, I got two, I worked there twice. I worked there from June of 71 till early 72. And I came back in 72 and worked there till middle or early 73. So... Maybe, I, I don't know how many months altogether, but one of my jobs was moving the paperbacks. They decided finally that paperbacks were almost as good as hardcover books. <laughs> and they mo I, I had to move them into the, the, the fiction, into the fiction room. The back room of the store was all fiction, was all literature, was all novels. And the books were double-shelved. The shelves were so deep they were double shelved, and they were new and mostly used, but 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 some new mixed in, and then they mixed. Then we mixed in the paperbacks, and I had to mix in the paperbacks, which were shelved originally by publisher. Okay. So all the vintage books, one through eight hundred something, were by, uh, by by number. Vintage one was maybe a Conrad book. Vintage eighteen was E. M. Forster's uh, Passage to India, something like this. I can still I can still remember these these uh, those numbers. Vintage was the Random House. Uh, uh, Anchor was the Doubleday. Uh, um, it's like the secret language of publishing. Absolutely, Midlands. The Midland paperbacks, Midland paperbacks, were Indiana University Press books. For some reason, Pretty Midland obscure. stays with me. I, right. don't, I don't know. I've never... So, you know, a, a lot of the folks listening to this may never have heard of the Gotham Book Mart. So this was a very famous place. It's proprietress and it's signage and it's folklore. Tell us a little about it. Frances Steloff was a woman 
who was originally from Saratoga, New York, a poor woman, a poor girl, orphaned, uh, Charles Dickens type of a, a poor childhood, uh, mother died, uh, evil stepmother kind of thing, moved to New York, got a job in a in like Woolworths, and the magazine girl didn't show up one day, and the manager said, Francis, you do that work. And she did so well that she became the the person in the book department. And then some years later, so th- this is in the teens, she used to tell me stories about crossing, walking across the Brooklyn Bridge to save the nickel. Francis was very, what's the word, parsimonious? Works for me. She saved, she saved all the nickels. Right. And she was working nearby, and there was a guy who she, uh, a friend of his, of hers, and one day at lunch, she walked by this location, not on 47th, but maybe on 51st Street, and she saw a sign for a shop for rent. And she went back and she told this guy, I'm going to open my own bookstore. And he said to her, you can't do that. And she said, why not? He said, because you're a girl. And so she opened the bookstore. She started the Gotham Bookmark. Gotham was the name of New York City. Uh, that comes from Washington Irving. He named New York Gotham. It wasn't Bruce Wayne. <laughs> when when I published when my little memoir of the Gotham Bookmark came out and I brought it down to the post office to see what kind of mailer I would need to send out to all my friends I was going to very happy that I mm-hmm. proud that I uh, uh, I showed the 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 book to the woman at the post office and it says my years at the Gotham Bookmark that was the title and she looked at the title and she looked back at me she looked at the title and she said are you Batman <laughs> <laughs> A touchstone cultural reference. So, so Francis started the Gotham Bookmark. She eventually married this guy, David, and eventually divorced him. And then she had this bookstore from 1920 on. And she was not a great reader herself. She's not a reader. She was a great reader, what she read, but she wasn't interested. But she knew culture and she knew society. And the 20s were a time of the, the moderns. And she used to put out catalogs called We Moderns. Which, uh, so, so she, these books, these were all new books. I guess they were all new at that time. Right. I don't know that she had used books. And these books were hardcovers that sold for, you know, $1.92, something like that. And, and this was T.S. Eliot and James Joyce and Ezra Pound and Ford Maddox Ford and uh, Sherwood Anderson, and the, the writers who became those writers from the early 20th century who we still remember. There were others who we don't remember. Right. It was Christopher Morley. And, and there were great stories. She never wrote a, a, a memoir. She did write a, a piece in a magazine that was the closest she came to writing a memoir. And I stole a lot of that from my book about the, the Gotham as well. And, but someone wrote a book about her. Uh-huh. And that was the book that she would eventually sign a copy for me and write as an inscription to a fine bookseller in the making. So that she was, saw the potential. She saw well, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or she was at least hopeful. So I remember. I, I think I remember it was. It was a step down to go in, right? It was three steps three, down, and there was a sign that said, "Wise men fish here." Wise men fish here, a, and it was a metallic sign. Metallic, that's right. Uh, it was. Like, it was oh, like. The, it must have come from that Jerome K. Jerome book, Three Men in a Boat. There were three guys fishing. 
and, and the sign said, wise men fish here. I don't know where she came up with that, why she came up with that. I don't, I, I don't know where that sign is now. The Gotham closed in 2009. Right. My little memoir came out right around then and I got an email from someone maybe a year later who said I know where that sign is <laughs> and I don't know where that email is <laughs> so that sign is in somebody's apartment in, in Manhattan somewhere the the Gotham bookmark was like a crossroads for for writers and poets who came into Manhattan that was great they that all showed up didn't they they, this was this was the place because they knew that these these new writers knew that their work would be accepted and disseminated from there. Uh, we were sh I was showing you a book today, the Henry Miller book, The Air Conditioned Nightmare. Miller was living. He was the guy who got me into this in the first right. place. I never wrote him a letter. I should have written him. Thanks a lot, Henry. Uh, I loved Henry Miller's writings. I didn't read, I didn't read, I, I tried reading the sexist, nexus, plexus books. They didn't do anything for me. They were very wordy. But his other books about observations of uh, people on the street stayed with me. And one, one time he wrote a book called Quiet Days and Clichy. And I remember spending a Sunday afternoon in that neighborhood in Paris and, and f almost fulfilling this obligation I had to walk the streets of this book that I had, uh, that I had read about. Right. And that was, that was one of the great things about literature for me. And then, of course, then all the other writers who came in, uh, 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 did I ever tell you what Gene Shalit said to me about my book? <laughs> Gene Shalit, the TV personality. Right. Can I drop a name like Please. Gene Shalit? Gene Shalit read my book, and he said, I hurt my back picking up all the names you dropped. Right. <laughs> there was, a, at the end of the book, there was a list of all the people that transversed that place. Right, right. And, and uh, traversed that place. Uh, and the Beats came. The even, Beats. Even during the time you were there. Uh, yeah, Allen Ginsberg used to come in the store. And, and the Gotham had a special section for the Beats. Right. One whole bookcase just for the Beats, which I tried to replicate somehow, but it didn't work. It hasn't worked in my store. My, my store is literature over here and poetry is over here. Uh, but it was, it was, the Gotham was a special enough place that they could get away with that. Yeah. And, and they, they also had the special uh, Edward Gorey shelf. Edward Gorey, the, the, the cartoonist, now he's a graphic novelist, uh, was, was a favorite of the Gotham and the Gotham published some of his stuff. Uh, but but other people, uh, Ginsburg came in. Ginsburg came in, and and uh, because he one day he wrote the introduction to a posthumously published Kerouac, Kerouac novel, uh, Visions of Cody, right. and he signed a copy for me. And I tried to engage him in conversation, and he finally said, he said, "Listen, I came here to look at books. Don't you have something to do?" <laughs> and. Thirty years later, I went back to the Gotham one day because I wanted to see the the basement where I had worked because I knew they were moving; they were going to move across town, and I wanted to look at that basement. The basement was where I got my education. I learned all. I spent all my day. My job as a stock boy was to go down to the basement and fill in the stock that had of the of the books that had sold the day before, and. So 30 years later, I went and I wanted to see the basement. I, I told Andy, the owner of the store, I want to go down there. And, and he came out, uh, he, he said to the people who were working there, he said, they put his arm around me. He said, this man worked here 30 years ago. And I still <laughs> felt like I was 17. And these people, these kids, these kids right. <laughs> followed me down to the basement. And I turned around and I said, 
I came here to browse. Don't you have work to do? <laughs> and it was my homage to Allen Ginsberg. There you go. So, Gotham Bookmart, and then how did you transition from there into the uh, Gotham? The Gotham was was this great place, and I learned so much. Uh, they had a poetry alcove. They had uh, uh, Miss Stelloff's alcove was was all the spiritual books. I used to sit by her knee, and she would tell me stories about Krishnamurti or Joel Goldsmith, and some of these people whom I didn't know about. But I was a young hippie into spiritualism in the, in the late sixties, early seventies, and this was Gurdjieff. Uh, this was this was I I went to work every day and learned stuff. It was it was kind of better than college kind of thing. <laughs> and and then one day an old friend from college came in. He saw me on my knees, literally on my knees. I was packing up a book or something, or un- unpacking a box of books, because that was my job. I, my job was to go in the basement and pull up and, and and pick up yesterday's sales. But the other job was opening the boxes of books. And uh, he saw me and he said, I can get you off your knees. I can make you uh, a, a real, I can give you a real job. And so I quit the Gotham and I moved back to Washington, D.C. to a company that he owned called RPM, which he named after the character in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Randall P. McMurphy. Randall P. McMurphy, Revolutions Per Minute. This was the revolutionary time. And sure enough, I was off my knees. I was a shipping clerk. Oh, step I was up. Sh- I would, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Instead of instead of shaking hands with Tennessee Williams right. and and uh, uh, Pat and, and talking about poetry with Patty Smith, I was now uh, looking at, uh, at the sales sheet and I had to pick out a book that on the on the back of that shelf and pack it up. My best day was I shipped out nineteen boxes of books all by myself in one day. In one day. These days. I still do the overstock returns at my store, and I get one box done, two boxes done. <laughs> so, so he, so uh, he uh, brought me down to Washington D.C., and he also brought another person from the Gotham, uh, Janie Tannenbaum. Happened to have That's the right, same, same last, last name, thing. Janie Tannenbaum. We're not related. We, when we met each other, we we. We knew we weren't related to each other, and what was most disappointing was to both of us was, was that neither of us was related to Martin Tannenbaum, Marty Tannenbaum, who owned Yonkers the Raceway at the time. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so Janie was from the Bronx. I saw her just a few weeks ago. She came in the store. I hadn't seen her in years. And uh, so Janie came down as a small press buyer because that's what she did at the Gotham. The Gotham was known for its small presses. It, you know, Ulysses was published by James Joyce, uh, published by Sylvia Beach, written by James Joyce in a small press edition. The, the, um, all the magazines from the 20s from London and Paris were these small, non-traditional presses. And in the 60s and 70s, all these presses, all these new presses grew up. And it was a it was a wonderful time to be involved with books. My first publisher, my first job at the Gotham, was to alphabetize not alph- alphabetize this uh, group of books in the basement from the Black Sparrow Press, which was a new publishing house publishing uh, published out of Santa Barbara, and they published uh, Paul Bowles. They published uh, uh, a guy named Charles Bukowski, <laughs> and, and um, it was. The books were were so lovingly produced, and there were paperbacks, and the 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 covers were like a vellum, like a hard uh, hard uh, cardboard, 
that you had to really wash your hands before you could touch them. And it taught me about proper care of books. So, so eventually at RPM, we had Black Sparrow books and all those. And so the, then Janie quit, and I became a small press buyer. And I did that for about a year and a half. And then I was in my late 20s and feeling like nothing was happening. And I had these friends in the Berkshires Western who, in Western Massachusetts who were artists. And they, one of them kidnapped me one day. Uh, well, I happened to be in New York, and he said, you're not going back home to Washington. You're coming up to the Berkshires. And they sat me down at the table. Did they have a table in the barn? I don't know. Huh. And they said, listen, you're a writer. We're artists. You're getting old. You're pushing. You're like pushing 30, kid. You're getting old. It's time you retired from this working thing. And you should come up here and become a novelist. So I quit my job, and I moved to the Berkshires. Easily influenced, it seems. I was sway like the wind. <laughs> and a year after I moved to the Berkshires, the bookstore in Lenox, whose books, who, who also had a, a publishing arm, the Bookstore Press, whose books I used to carry as a small press buyer. Right. And uh, I used to sell books, other books, to them, the books were in Lennox. So I knew about it. And I called up the guy. I found out he was selling it. We met one day. He said, come to the poetry reading on Sunday. And we met at the poetry reading over the next town in West Stockbridge, shook hands and made a deal, and I bought the bookstore. And it was, was a little more complicated than that. What year was that? 76. Okay. April Fool's Day. April 1st, 1976. You opened up. I opened up. All right. So tell us a little about the bookstore. You know, give us a picture in our minds of what does it look like? What's the, what is, where is it in, uh, in, it, in Lenox and what does it look like? Lenox, Massachusetts is a small town. There are no stoplights in the village. There are stoplights on the other, on the outside of town. Not like Stockbridge, which still has no stoplights right. in the whole town. It's, Best described, like it's it's like an Edward Hopper painting of a storefront with two large windows and a doorway in between. It's about twenty feet wide, sixty feet long. My desk is at the front, and I my desk. The guy who started it, this guy David, who I bought it from, had the idea of the bookseller didn't stand behind a counter; he sat at a desk, and there were chairs and stools near the desk. And so it became a place, so it was always a place of conversation. You didn't just buy a book and walk out. You sat, mostly you sat down, especially people who were tired. They, you know, <laughs> like, I'm browsing all the time. They, they sit down on, a, on, on the bench and, they, uh, and we start schmoozing. If they're lucky, I tell them a story about a book. If they're not so lucky, I tell them a joke. <laughs> so the, book, the bookstore is, and fiction is the main part of the store. Okay. And and then uh, and then some years later, so that was seventy six. So sometime in the probably early two thousands, the storefront next door became available. Okay. And I, you expanded. I expanded. <laughs> scary. If I had thought it was scary, I don't know. I, I maybe I wouldn't have done it. Since I'd never had any business training, I had no idea about what square footage should generate what kind of income sales uh, per square foot wasn't part of the education was not no i had i had no business class you know all all my a lot of my friends from college were in the business school 
Maybe I should have called one of them. But they might have said, don't do this. <laughs> and this was what you were going to do regardless. I was going to, you know, because, yeah. because it just struck me like, I wanted to do this. The store was for sale. I knew when I moved to the Berkshires that I probably knew that I wasn't a novelist, <laughs> but I probably knew that somewhere. And I, it was like when I walked into the Gotham, I fell in love with the place. And I said, oh, I could do this. And so we bought the store. My partner and I bought the store. I got rid of the partner after a year or so. And the first summer, because I bought it in April, and, and it's a, it's, Lenox is a uh, touristy town. Right. Always has been uh, since the nineteenth mid-19th century. Lenox is halfway. Lenox is 115 miles from Fenway Park and 100 and, used to be 114 116 from Yankee Stadium. Now it's 114 because they moved the Yankee Stadium. So it's it's the high-minded people from Boston meet the high rollers from New York. And that happened in the mid-19th century. And it's been that way ever since. So So the bookstore, back, uh, I think it was in mid-2016, a uh, fellow cartoonist for the New Yorker named Bob Eckstein wrote a book. And it's called footnotes from the world's greatest bookstores and the footnotes has an asterisk and i'm looking at it here it says true tales and lost moments from book buyers booksellers and book lovers and this book contains about profile snapshots page or two about 40 bookstores from all over the world the world some of those bookstores no longer exist but they merited inclusion here because they were one of the world's greatest bookstores there's bookstores in india in paris a handful from New York, all different boroughs. And when you open this up, the very first bookstore mentioned is something called The Bookstore in Lenox, Massachusetts. So to be included in this footnotes from the world's greatest bookstores, there must be something special about this bookstore. Now, my guess has something to do with you, but I'm curious just <laughs> what makes this what, what makes this bookstore so special that people would seek it out and say, hey, this place is worth visiting. Well, this book, Footnotes, by Bob Eckstein, was, like the subtitle says, Lost Tales. True Tales, what is it? True Tales, Lost... True Tales and Lost Moments. And Lost Moments. You know, any, anybody's lives are, everybody's lives are filled with, whether it's an epiphany or a funny story or a coincidence or anything like this, in a bookstore, and there have been a number of books about overheard in the bookstore that, that kind of thing so bob read my little memoir about the gotham and he called me and he said i've been to your store i was out of town at the time uh and you tell a great you tell great stories in your in your book the name dropping book right. and uh and i've been to your store it looks like a great store tell me some stories about your store so i told him a couple of stories and he wanted celebrities right uh, because that was a crossroads for celebrities, especially with summer stock and theater. People right, came around. Right. So, so uh, because I had written these uh, in the Gotham, I had two stories about, um, or a number of stories, and he included two stories from the Gotham, the E.E. E. Cummings story and a D.H. Lawrence story. So he asked me for some other stories in Lennox. So I told him the story about uh, a, a um, Hungarian journalist who came to America and was, he was a guy who had 
been in prison, but thrown in prison by Hitler. He was he was uh, from Budapest originally in the 30s or 20s, and uh, moved to Berlin and got in trouble. Was outspoken. Hitler threw him in jail. And this guy, and then he got out six months later, and he went to England, and he wrote a bestseller called "I Was Hitler's Prisoner." It came out in 1934, and and it made his name. And he moved to America, and he had a lot of money, and and he was a he was a photojournalist. He started a magazine in England, like Life magazine here. Anyway, he was a big, he was very full of himself, and he had a thick accent. And one day, uh, to humor him. Not to humor him, but I, yes, to humor him. But but I was also I was also I wasn't in awe of him. But I but this guy had lived through history, right? And so I said to him because I knew he liked to tell stories, and I had a couple of people in the store who would overhear. I said, Stefan, uh, I know Hitler threw you in jail, but did you ever know him personally? And he his eyes got big, and he put his arms over his crossed his arms over his chest, and he said, We went out with the same girls. <laughs> One morning I bring her home and there was Hitler waiting for her. And then he goose-stepped around, at, oh like goodness. parody of, of Hitler. And I thought, this is, <laughs> nobody else knows this story. So I told that story to Bob Eckstein. He liked that story. And I told him uh, uh, James Taylor's story, James Taylor coming in, maybe a Paul Newman's story, and and because uh, uh, these people would come in the story. That's what he wanted to hear. So I didn't know what kind of book Bob was writing. He said, I'm writing a book about bookstores, and you tell a great story. I didn't know that he was, maybe he told me he was an artist and a cartoonist. So he, uh, in this book, he took photographs of all the bookstores, right. and then he did watercolors over them, of them. Right. And he sent, me one, he sent me an original. He sent me the, the, the right. thing, and, and I'm the first one. I said, I said to him, Bob, why am I the first one? He said, well, you gave me the most, you, you were the most helpful. But then I overheard him say to somebody else, my editor really liked that Hitler story. <laughs> right. So so of all the stories in the book, I, I think I have the only Hitler story. Right. So it was a little... So I've been to the bookstore, obviously, many times over the years. And I just, I loiter there all the time. I loiter by the front. Uh, and you ha- there's competition for loitering by the front of this bookstore. Because this is a place that people, it's a destination. And inevitably, people wander in, tourists in town, eh, bookstore. I always think it could be a museum. You could charge admission because it's like a museum. Put a red velvet rope there. Look at this, a bookstore. But there are regulars that come in who are seasonal, year-round residents. People who just regularly come in, especially on the weekends, they'll come in. And they just engage in conversation. It's a, it's a Saturday morning. Uh, you go to the post office, you go to the bookstore. And so I listen to their stories. There always seems to be, there's a, a couple of short stacks of books on this little desk in front. And I, and I, you know, I sit down there, I loiter, I got a book, I'm reading something, and I'm mostly listening to the conversations because they're fascinating. And it seems like part of the, of the protocol, if you're part of the cognoscente, if you know the ritual of the bookstore, you, you hang around to eavesdrop as the stories unfold. Absolutely. And I see that, you know, you pick up, someone comes in, you say hello, invite them, you know, are you here visiting? What, what are you interested in? What kind of things do you like to read? And inevitably, they go right into the story, and there's a book right on the desk there that must have fit just right for that. Do, do I guide the conversation around to the book? Or there, there are times when I will, 
actually get up and go and find a book on the shelf because I know where the conversation is going, come back and put the book on the desk and then and you know not bring it up right away, but then say, you know, that reminds me of this, cha- of, of you know, on page 96, uh, while the moon smoothly shifted the shadows from one side of Ezra to the other. And there were some books that I... It's, They're regulars. There are some, there are some books that I know the first line of, first lines of, and and inevitably I'll ask someone who, who's chosen a book, "Did you read the first page?" And they'll say yes or no, and I'll say, "Can I read the first page?" And if it's if it's like a, a thriller, like uh, um, sometimes the first line. I'll I'll close it right up. That's too much for me. I right. won't I won't do that. But then you know sometimes I'll read a paragraph out loud, and um, sometimes they'll say keep reading. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and then the crowd forms. Uh, so favorite books. Got to be a tough question, but you know I'm just curious off the top. What are, what are, and why? What are your, some of your favorite books and why? When I. F- First got to Lenox, uh, and I would meet people, they would say, how did you get here? And uh, invariably I would say, my background is in fiction. <laughs> well, my background is fiction. <laughs> so it's mostly fiction. I was one of those guys who read fiction in my, uh, in, in, in college, I didn't read a lot, but I got turned on to The Lost Generation and Hemingway and Fitzgerald. I never got into Thomas Wolfe. I never, it was, it was too, too much. Uh, but Hemingway and, F- and Fitzgerald. And then at the Gotham, I found these other authors. Yeah, I, found, I found Miller. I had found Miller somewhere else. And I found Durrell. And I read Durrell. And I always have Durrell books. And I always have Anais Nin books. Uh, Anais Nim was one of my favorites. She was a French novelist who was famous for writing her, her publishing her diary. Her diary was now forty years later. I can see it's a little self-indulgent, or it's a lot self-indulgent. But that, but it was it. That's what passed for literature. And my one of my the first time I had the store, the first month or so I had the store, a woman called up and said, "Do I have any Anais Nin?" And I said, yes, I did. She said, well, do you have the first volume of the, of the diary? I said, yes, I do. So put it aside. So an hour, a couple hours later, she came in. She said, and I, I, you know, she was one of these people who, who knew the store but didn't know me because I was the new owner. Right. And she said, do you have any more in Niacinin? And she, I said, I had all the other volumes of the, of the diaries and some other books. And maybe she bought a couple other books. And, and this was my first major sale. <laughs> And it was a stack of books. And in those days, we didn't have a computer. I wrote every title down. You write every title down. You hold the book in your left hand, I did, and I wrote it down in my right hand. And that was a way to get to know a book. You know, nowadays, you scan a barcode on the back of the book. And, you know, I still turn it over to look at each book. I don't know if the people who work for me do that. I tell them to. Did I tell him to? I think I told him to. And anyway, her purchase came to like maybe $45, which was a lot of money in 1940s, in 1976. I couldn't look her in the face. It was so much money. I felt like I was, I was being, I was cheating her. 
I charge a full price, and I learned I learned how to do that. So, so those three: Nin, Miller, and Durrell. And then, and then I would meet authors, and that was a, a scary part for me. You know, a famous author would come in, and uh, uh, one of the famous ones was uh, Bill Shira, a historian, lived down the street. And I thought to myself, how can I, how, how can I be his bookseller? And he came and introduced himself to me, and he said, "I'm you're my bookseller." And that was it, de facto. And that was great. So I would read his books. uh, And so I I would read books by people who I was getting to know. And then there was, there was a place, a warehouse in Manhattan that David, the previous owner of the store, showed me how to go down to and go shopping in this huge warehouse, city block in in Manhattan, that had all the books arranged by publisher. And within those shelves by the publisher were the books arranged by uh, alphabet by author. And I saw, if I knew one book, or if I had a special order for one book by this one author, there were all these other books by that author. So I picked them all up. And again, there was no business training. This was, this was no way to, to run a business. Inventory management. To, no, inventory, no. inventory management. I had, those two words didn't exist. Right. Right. These were books that I was buying and I was going to sell. Right. There was no inventory management. And which, which brings up the idea that when you walk in the store, it is not like a traditional chain store, right? Where you you're it's almost predictable what you're going to see. It's in the New York Times. It's here. It's there. And your store, I, I recall you saying one time that, hey, just because it makes the New York Times bestseller list, I may not carry it if I don't think it's a quality book. I don't want to carry those books. For many years, I did not carry hardcover mysteries. I didn't think I had an audience for them. And I, I think I was right. I hope I was right. <laughs> I could have made a lot of money in those. Right. But but over the over the years, uh, more people buy hardcover mysteries now, and I have a big uh, hardcover. Right. My my hardcover fiction shelf is a, a lot of mysteries. So, the bookstores are curated work. But but I won't carry certain authors because their books are just terrible. There's there there these are these are books that you don't have to read because they've already been read hundreds of times. Pardon me. So I'll special order it for you, and I'll try not to insult you. <laughs> of course. <laughs> and if I happen to insult you, well, then you probably deserved it. I rolled my eyes one time at a customer who bought a book. I rolled my eyes at the book, and she walked out, and the next day, her husband came in the store. I was sitting in the back of my desk. Did I ever tell you this I story? Yeah. And. I'm sitting at my desk, and he walks in, and he stands there with his hands folded over, kind of like Stephen Laurent, right. you know. And I, I looked up at him. I said, "Your wife is angry at me." He said, "Yes, she is." I said, "What's your number? I'm going to call her right now." I called her. I picked up. I picked up the phone. I called her. She got on the phone. I said, "Whatever her name was," I said, "I want to apologize," and she said, "I don't accept your apology." <laughs> Even better. Be- because she knew I wasn't really... That wasn't sincere. I was still rolling my eyes. <laughs> so I remember when you when you expanded and you had the used... You, the store next door became the used bookstore. Right. And at one point you have some... Uh, you were uh, the Western Massachusetts headquarters for the Dennis Kucinich campaign. I was. Right. You were also the campaign headquarters for Bernie Sanders, I think, at one point. Or you, it was... Uh, I think we had something for yeah. Bernie. Well, we, we, and we still have the Bernie Sanders sign. What year this is, uh, you're listening to this, right. I don't know. But right. this, this is, we, three years later, we still have a Bernie Sanders sign in our window. So 
but I remember your, some of your, uh, you have different various uh, political statements on the, on the uh, tables with the books. And uh, a fellow came in, he didn't like your politics. You remember the story? Tell me. You told me a story that said, this guy came in, he looked around there, and he says, I don't like your politics. You said, you don't like the books? Yeah, it's okay. You could go to the shop next door. <laughs> right. <laughs> and we, 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 didn't, we didn't know what to do. This is before I broke the wall down between the two, between the right. two uh, right. uh, venues. So it was, we called it the next door bookstore. Right. So if you don't like it here, go next, go next door. door. Yeah, go there next door. Go. So some years ago, actually, that once you broke through, in the midst of the, uh, the bookstore coffee shop craze, you went a little bit counterintuitive. You thought, <laughs> I know my audience. Coffee, they don't, they, they're not coming in here for coffee and a book. It, you know, if they do, you don't want them in there. No, no. I, you know, before, before Barnes and Noble started, before. You put Barnes and Noble out of business, didn't you? <laughs> they're not, they're, they're out of business. They're out right? of business. Are they out of business? And, and they had, bef- even before Starbucks, or maybe it was with Starbucks, they would have these Starbucks coffee shops, right? Right. right. I used to make coffee in the back of the store in my cowboy boot. It was cowboy coffee. Cowboy. And if you wanted a cup of coffee, we had a couple of cups, and you could have a cup of coffee. Go rinse it out when you're finished. So, so we already had that. Right. But you sat at the desk and you read it. You weren't wa- wandering the store with a paper cup. Uh, and especially nowadays, I right. still have this, in the summertime, uh, iced coffee or ice drinks, and people put the books down on top of the books, uh, put their cups down on top of the books. And the moisture. And just... would, you know, would, stop it. <laughs> stop it. <laughs> so, yeah, so, so it wasn't so much the anti-coffee, although I, I, knew, I knew that the second location needed something else. It was, it was, the used books were kind of happening and they weren't happening. And then I was in Europe visiting a friend. And every night we'd go to a cafe before we go, after, after going to a show or something, and, and we'd have a drink. And I came home, and in his honor, I decided to make a wine bar, a cafe wine. I call it a wine bar. Right. In my mind, the, the reason was I was making a cafe for people to have a drink. And, and I, I searched around for a name. And I, I couldn't think of a name. And I put the word out. I said, uh, said to, uh, email to friends. I said, what should I call it? And one guy wrote back and he said, get lit. So that was, that that was perfect. That just made sense, didn't it? And then years later, I said, you know, I thanked him for that. And he said, I didn't give you that. So I take credit. Of course. I, yes. I, I, I if you take from word. one person, it's stealing. If you take from many people, it's research. Yeah, I was, I was. Uh, so, so get lit became the became the moniker, and to this day, uh, well, now uh, on um, websites, what do you call it? Uh, uh, Expedia. We'll get to Expedia yeah. in a minute. Uh, your all your all your travelocities and things. Uh, they mention that the bookstore has a wine bar, so we get a lot of people coming in. And we had a lot of people taking pictures of the sign that says Get Lit. Get lit. <laughs> so even though more people take pictures of Get Lit than who belly up to the bar, I still think it's a great success. And, and we have a lot of repeat customers at the bar. And it's just, it, it became another place for me to sit or stand behind and tell stories. So this is really what the- And I have, I, I keep a stash of books at the bar. <laughs> In case... 
in case something comes up in conversation that is apropos to that book. Absolutely. It's, it's Jan Wiener's memoir, and Jan Wiener was the guy in Europe. Right. And, and so I have his, his book. Because I tell the story of, why did you start a bar? And I tell the story of how I started the bar. And then um, I have copies of my book. Of course. So those are the two books. And we saw a lot of copies of those. <laughs> so they're, they're more than props. Right. So people come in the store and it's... I, I, have to, I have to still get back to my favorite books, I know. Okay. Yeah. We'll come back in a second. But people come in the store and they're looking for books... But it seems that I, I've been in the store when you're not in the store and it, you stepped out or whatever, or you're in the back and people come to the store, they take a look around. The first thing they say is, where's Matt? Is Matt here? So people come in to see you because they want to talk books. People who love books want to talk books. They want to talk books and they have this idea, you know, I'm that person to that, them. That idealistic, wow, has an independent bookstore. What a life! What 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 a life! And you must know everything. And if they over, if you hear me talk, tell a story about, uh, let's say, I recite that paragraph from from Crowley's Little Big, right? And I know this whole paragraph by heart, and I can recite it. And or I can recite a piece by E. B. White. And one one morning, I sold. I, I I was telling somebody she mentioned an island in Maine, and I said, "Well, that's in an E. B. White piece." And I recited the piece, and I sold three copies of the book. By other for, to other people who, who were just, just over here, just, yeah, gathering around. <laughs> so this this is your business strategy, right? Just to be knowledgeable and effable, knowledgeable about those books that I I love the books that I know about. Right. And this is a secret now. I'm going to tell you. So everybody thinks that I feel that way about every book. <laughs> Of course. <laughs> of course. Because that's that was, the alchemy. That's, that's who I am. I must yeah. be that person. Yeah. You're the bookseller. Yeah. yeah it wasn't always that way. The, you know, that, that first summer, I remember uh, Sterling Hayden, the actor, uh, wrote a novel. And someone came in and said, and held it in his hand and said, what do you, uh, tell me about this book. I said, well, he's, uh, uh, he's an actor, but this is his first novel. And the guy looks at me and he says, yeah, I know. I read that on the back of the book. What do you know? <laughs> that, that guy, for all I know, that guy never has come back to the store. But that got you to a different level. In yes, that book, was, right? it was a lesson I learned. Yeah, Don't try to bullshit. Right. People want, people want to know your opinion about the books because you live in that world. I remember, because that place down in Manhattan was called Book People? Bookazine. Bookazine, right? I remember you, you know. Did you ever go down there? I was there once with oh, you. Oh, my God. Because it was like a candy store for people into books. Everything was there. There was, there was every, it was a city block in Manhattan. It was huge. It was a candy store. You go from just shelf to shelf, different genre and authors. And, and I got to know the buyers down there. And I got to know some, why they bought the books that they bought. Yeah. And they would tell me, you know, I got to, I, you want that book over there? I got a secret stash. I got an extra carton over here because the book is selling so well. I, I saved some. Here, take three copies or five All copies. relationship. Yeah, yeah. So back to uh, favorite books, favorite authors. Favorite, favorite books. books. Crowley's Little Big was uh, Crowley lived in Lenox in the late seventies, and he wrote this book. I didn't know what he was writing. He had written a couple of science fiction books that I needed his help in deciphering, and one of the books he drew me a chart. 
I hope I still have that chart somewhere. And then this new book he was working on for years, and I didn't know what it was. And eventually it got sold to a publisher, and I got an advanced copy. And I start reading the advanced copy, and I'm reading about all the things that he and I talked about in uh, abstract terms. And I realized that he, so this guy, in my memory, every afternoon around three o'clock after he finished his writing day, he would come in, sit in that big brown chair, and we would talk about whatever we would talk about. And they were outtakes from his writing days. So I recognized characters, even though he hadn't told me anything about his book, I recognized so much of what he was saying. So that became my favorite book. And years later, uh, well, fiction was always always my favorite. The Durrell uh, novels. And um, then I would be attracted sometimes by a cover. Yeah. But I would know also by this time. Now, this is like, so I started the Gotham in 71. By 70, by the late 70s, by early 80s, I was... I was that guy who owned the bookstore. The previous guy had owned it for 10 years. And there was some getting over the hump on that. It was, sure. there, was, there was a customer who years later told me she resented me for years because I wasn't that guy. You know, did I tell you the story about the, the painter? I don't recall. A woman, a woman calls up one day, like right after I bought the store. I'll get to the favorite books. I That's really all right. I, she calls up maybe a week or two after I have the store. And maybe she doesn't know that David sold it, or maybe she forgot. And she, I pick up the phone, and I say, hello, the bookstore. And she says, the painter's going to call. I have to go out. The painter's going to call. Tell him Thursday's no good, but next Tuesday it works, okay? Thanks. <laughs> Bye. And hung up the phone. I had no idea who this woman was. A couple hours later, a guy calls me. I say, hello, bookstore. And he says, I'm the painter. I said, Thursday's not going to work. Next Tuesday works. He said, thanks. That was it. For all I know, these two people have been favorite customers of mine for all these years. Or I never met them ever. Or she didn't have an answering service, so she wanted to use you as the as I was the service. An, I was the answering service. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I was the community. That's the public service. Right, right. So, favorite books. People would turn me on to books. There was, uh, there was a series of travel books by a guy named Patrick Fermer. And I read it, I heard, I remember Joe, the woman who worked for me, read them in the 70s when they first came out. And I didn't read them at all. 30 years later, someone gave me a copy of the first of the three books to give to somebody else because I was traveling. That's when I went to Prague to visit these people in Prague. And on the plane over, I read that book and I fell in love with it. And I became a big fan of that guy. So the Patrick Fermer books are my favorite books. The novels, so that, those are travel books. And I read some other travel books, the Dural books. What other books? I didn't, I don't you know. know. You, for years, you would send me books. You still send me books. Some solicited, some unsolicited. So the solicited ones, I say, hey, I'm looking for this, this, this book. And they show up. But then it's the unsolicited ones that I'm always piqued my interest because what do you know about me that I don't know about me? <laughs> and of course, you Can know, you, they were mostly baseball books. Okay. Almost mostly, all baseball books. Right, right, right. That you would get an advanced copy of or you'd hear about from the publisher. The Donald Hall book, Father's Playing Catch After with the Sons. Sons. Yeah, I remember that. You know, and I didn't know who Donald Hall was, but I read that book. It was a book of essays about baseball. 
mostly baseball, other sports maybe. And then I found out Donald Hall was his poet. And then he wrote a memoir about growing up on a New England farm called String Too Short to Be Saved. You know that book? No, String Too Short to Be Saved. Uh, he, the title comes from a, a box found in an old attic in a New England farmhouse. It's a box of string. And it's tied with a piece of string around it. And on the outside of the box, it says, String Too Short to Be Saved. <laughs> Excellent. And this, so, you know, that title, so that author knew that he had the title for his memoir about uh, spending summers on his grandparents' farm. And the grandparents go back to like the late 19th century, early 20th century. So, uh, so I'll find out, so I make those connections. So I read Donald Hall on baseball, and then now I read his poetry. Right. I remember uh, you sent me Steve Kluger's book, The Last Days of Summer. Did you tell me about it, or did I? I don't, I don't remember now how I came about it, but I remember when it showed up, and I read it out loud to Danise. One of the many baseball books I read out loud to her. How, there this, are some books was, you can't read out loud because you ju- just start weeping. Yeah, you can't get through them. <laughs> this was about a, a a young boy, precocious young fellow, maybe 12, 13 years old, pre in the early pre war pre World War II early days, years of World War II, told in correspondence. Between this they young could, boy... They call that an epistolatory novel. There you go. Now I know. <laughs> His correspondence with Roosevelt, with Stinson, with Cordell, and with a rookie third baseman for the Giants, New York Giants, while he was a Giants fan living in Brooklyn. Beautiful book. And, and one, of the most, one of the funniest books that you'll ever read. And one of the most poignant books, and and it has uh, a surprise ending or an ending that I was I I'm an I like to think of myself even now in my late nineties <laughs> <laughs> as an innocent reader. Yeah, and you know, and 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 uh, I've I've heard other I've heard I've had writers tell me that you are the best kind of a of a reader. From you're my kind of reader. Salinger, our friend Salinger, right. dedicated one of his books to yes. Uh, what's what's the inscription? Do we have a copy of the no, book here? Dear reader, dear. Um, I don't know. It was about innocence of some sort. The, something about about being an innocent reader. Right. Um, in in the in the in the what's the word in the spirit of my son Matthew, yes. age one, one right. offering a string bean to <laughs> to his neighbor to his playmate. Uh, uh, I offer yes. these books, these stories to you yeah. uh, as, as an innocent reader. I remember when when uh, Jack Finney's work started to show up in my mailbox. Jack uh, Finney, time and again, and then those series of stories, the third level, about the this imagined third level at Grand Central Station. That was the begin. That was the first story of a, a, a book. <clears throat> pardon me, about time travel. time travel. Time and again was the big time travel novel that he you know, worked on for years and years and years. And you don't, you know, to this day, I forget that books take a long time to write. For, to, they, they, they take a long time to be, to be to, written. To be written. Right. So in the meantime, he wrote these great short stories. Yeah. He wrote for science fiction theater uh, on early television. Yeah. And he wrote these time travel stories that, that I think Janie turned me on to back at the Gotham. 
because we all read Time and Again back around 1970 when it came out. And I think Janie and I were going to call him one night. Like late at night, we got his number in, 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 in Mill City, Mill Valley, just in Marin County. Right. Yeah. Uh, uh, I, never, I never did talk to him. So the, being a bookseller from the early 70s to the mid-70s and beyond, things changed when uh, the Amazon folks showed up. <clears throat> Curious, what was, what's your remembrance of how that entered the field of play? I was taken aback. Yeah, unexpected. It was, it, it, yeah, took, took me totally by surprise. And so if that was at the end of the 90s, by the end of the 90s, my store was pretty well established. Right. So I'd been there, I'd been there 20 years. And I had a, I think for the first number of years, uh, call it the first 20 years or so, or 15, 20 years, I was, I, I remember the weekend before Memorial Day, wondering how many copies of the field guide to North American reptiles I should get in for the weekend. And that was a, that was, that's a detail that I remember trying to think of how to do this. Again, I had no training. I had no inventory management training. I had no idea of what the inventory stock turn should be. Right. And oh, I lost the thread here. Uh, We're talking about Amazon and how, this, how the industry was changing. And so, by, so I was still trying to learn how to do things and trying to please my customers or trying to have the books that I thought my customers would like that I would be happy and responsible enough to, to present to them. The Gotham, years later, after when, I, when I, my little book came out, uh, uh, one of my customers reminded me that Francis Stelloff had said, in some statement, we don't sell books here, we offer them for sale. And that is, is yeah. you know, that declension yeah. is, makes all the difference. Yeah. So by the, by the, by the mid-90s, I was settled and I knew what I had. I wasn't, I wasn't trying anymore to learn well, I'm still trying to learn right. the right thing <laughs> to do. Inventory management. Inventory management. Inventory control. Right. Inventory models. Ooh, even uh, 21st century terminology. The, so by that time, I was, uh, I, I, was, I was taken aback by Amazon because I had these books. What, what, do, you need, what do you need to go? And what did they want? I think it was... <clears throat> it was price first. Right. They discounted. Sure. So it was price that people uh, um, and uh, I, I didn't. I didn't really respond. And then it became convenience. Yes. And then it became speed. Yes. Then it. Then it became and 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 then that was the real challenge because I was still buying books in the nineties. I think I was still. 
No, by that time I wasn't going to Bookazine anymore. By that time, Book that warehouse deal had fallen. Bookazine moved to Jersey, and everything became computerized. Sure. I was the last one to become computerized. Right. I didn't become. I didn't get a computer till the mid nineties, right. and 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 I didn't get a computer in the store till you know ten years later. So, Amazon, you know, it was it was it was it was really the. Um, uh, Barnes and Noble that moved into the neighborhood in the '90s. That that was my first real competition. There's a, another bookshop, you know, ten miles down the road. That was not my real competition. Right. They were they were an independent bookstore like mine, but they were more commercial. They were just more commercial. They didn't have a poetry section. That if I didn't have that poetry section, I'd have enough money to buy food, right. you know, in my life. But I had this poetry section, and I became known for having this poetry section. And then it became, the, my, all my poetry section were loss leaders. I learned that term. You know what a loss leader yeah, is? Right. Milk, you sell it a loss right. because you bring them in the store. Right. Poetry is, this guy has more poetry than uh, uh, Lucia Berlin, right. you know, whoever. whoever. And, and so I realized that I needed to, that was, that was a selling point for me. So I had, so why do you want to go somewhere else? And then, and then they, they kind of pissed me off. And, um, and then, then it's all about convenience. And then, you know, I re, I had one, a, a guy came in the store one day, and this is maybe just 10 years ago. And he says, uh, I, I was in the neighborhood. I thought I'd pick up my, the, the book my wife ordered. I said, what book is that? And he told me the name. I said, yeah, it should be here in a couple of days. I, he just ordered it yesterday. He said, "Yeah, we could have had it. We could have had it by today from Amazon." Get and, the hell out of this! And <laughs> I think I think by that time I had learned to just not <laughs> say a word. When uh, you know, what what is our motto? Uh, it takes longer, but it costs more. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> well, your 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 book. Um your bookmarks say serving the community since last Tuesday. That's right. And and now it's evolved. I think it says now uh, we're not satisfied until you're not satisfied. <laughs> yeah, that, that's where we're thinking of changing our motto. <laughs> so you can, that's not you true. can only insult your customers so much. <laughs> so but, much, right. But right. What, I remember what happened was, I remember coming in one time visiting and you said, well, we knocked out of Barnes & Noble because Amazon knocked out the Barnes & Nobles and the Borders. And, and you say, yeah, we, we're still here, and those chains are going down. Those chains are going well, so, so I realized that, that you know, once Amazon came in, they were destroying the, the big box bookstores. Right. And it was Barnes & Noble and Borders. Right. And, and I saw how Barnes & Noble and Borders was trying to compete by bringing a nook in. You know, then the Kindle came, and, right. and, and, uh, and they were trying to do that. And I realized I had this image in my head of King Kong and Godzilla. That movie that we must have seen in Long Beach one sure. summer day, you know, just battling each other. And I said, I'm not either of those guys. I'll just, I'll just, I'll just sit back here and let them, let them duke it out. And Amazon, you know, one day a customer came in and I had been working maybe nine days straight without a day off. And she, and she, I didn't have a book she wanted. And she said, well, I'll just go to Barnes & Noble and get it. And I just yelled at her. <laughs> I said, you know, just, and, and um, later, she came back uh, some days later and said, you know, 
you you really I didn't deserve that. I said you're right. You didn't you didn't deserve that. I should keep my fucking attitude to myself <laughs> because you're such a shithead <laughs> for saying that to me. But we'll be friends from now on. And she hasn't bought a book for years. For there you go. Years. I, I'm under the opinion that those people you don't want them coming to the store. I had a customer one time, but he was a real estate agent, and he never been in the store. He never comes in the store. Uh, he's a real estate agent, and he um, he goes to the rack and he picks out a paperback, and it's like six ninety five. And he says, he comes up to the desk. He says, six ninety five for a paperback. I said to him, you know what they're getting for a thirty thousand dollar house these days. And he has never come back to the store. I see him on the street. His wife is a good friend of mine. She comes in the store all the time. He's never stepped back in the store. Yeah, there are certain people I just I don't need. Yeah, no, this is you curate not just the books, you curate the people. I curate the customers. I love it. Curate the customers. <laughs> so with Amazon and then uh, Audible, books, audiobooks, right? Some yeah. markets so, there. So yeah, we have we, we sell some audiobooks uh, uh, but they don't I don't have a big department for it, and it's and it's it's a whole other inventory. Right. You could are you going to have your history? Going to have your David Halberstam or your David McCulloch or or then the of your mysteries? And are these are people going to buy them? And by the time I got through futzing around with people are going to buy them or not, everybody's on Audible. Right. So I do carry some, I try to carry some children's books, uh, children's uh, uh, books on CD. But, you know, they have, their, children now are born with uh, uh, chips. So they listen right. to, to CDs when, when... They just <laughs> press their nose yeah. or tap an eyelid. So that's... So what about, what about books in print? Is it... Is it is it holding up? Books, What's the future look like? Well, so the e-books are, are you know, leveled out. Over the years, and they're not gaining any traction. And there are so after after Barnes and Noble moved into uh, um, all the locations, all and, and and took over all the locations right. and drove the small bookstores out of business right. in small towns all over the country. Kind of like well, we were in Whole Foods yesterday. I was thinking about uh, uh, what if Whole Foods came to the Berkshires. What, how, would it, how would it, as a powerful place, change everything? You know, we have our own, uh, the co-op and Guido's are, are big natural food uh, locations, and they are, we have remained, isol uh, not isolated, but uh, um, inured from that. Yeah. And just, just, like, just like, well, so when Barnes Noble first came into Pittsfield, uh, 15 miles or 10 miles up the road I actually had people who came in and said I will never go there <laughs> the, the, you, the loyal the, these are the loyal people yeah. yeah and hopefully not all of those people have died yet that's right they have children <laughs> who they introduce the idea of books that you can actually go into a store take it open up and read a few pages browse and there are children who come in and this is so sweet children who tell me that their grandmother loved me they remember their grandmother taking them to the store. And some of these people are from long-standing families. And they, the kids, who are now in their 20s and 30s, try to do what their grandparents did, which was lay a lot of money on me. <laughs> you know, they would come, in, let's say, at Christmas time, and buy a couple of hundred dollars or $500 worth of books. And these kids 
don't have they, they don't have enough old money yet. There's they're they're, they're they got their old they're money, but they're it. working on their new money and they're trying to make it. And but it's it's so sweet to see them do that. And on, on of a Sunday morning in the summertime or even in the wintertime, especially on school vacation time. You you know I'm sitting at the front desk or I get to the store just around opening time, and kids come rattling the door. They come running up the sidewalk. They remember the last time they were there. We have a lovely children's section. Right. And if, as far as I'm concerned, these people are going to grow up and read books. Yeah. Now, I know that when they reach 13, 14, or 11, 12, 13, 14, they're going to stop reading books, right. and they're going to find about girls and boys, and, and then they're going to go to high school, and they're going to get all the, this, this stuff, all, all that Joseph Conrad and Dostoevsky put on them, and I'm going to lose them for a while. But the great thing was, uh, I learned this a couple of years into it, Thanksgiving weekend, when kids from high school would come home for the first time from college, and they would go to the bar across the street on Wednesday night, uh, because they can only stand being with their parents for like a couple of hours. Right. I'm so really glad to be home, Mom. I'm going out now. Uh, Friday, Saturday, after the, after the holiday, they're in the store and they're meeting up in the store. And the store is this meeting place because they've learned about literature in college or they remember that that's a great, this is a great place to be. So it's a lot of fun to see. The, and of course, I don't recognize any of them because they've all grown up. Right. I'm still that old guy. I was that old guy then. I don't look older to them because when I was 30 and they were 14 or 8, right. I was the old guy. I'm still the old guy. As <laughs> they, long as you're they still think, here. They think I still, I, I had white hair then. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm curious, what does the future look like? You've got two kids, two daughters you're raised in the Berkshires, my lovely nieces. What, uh, what's their interest in the bookstore? What, what's, what's the next generation thinking? Well, I think, I think that the kids are going to take it over. Eventually, I think I think that I was I was trying to think about retiring a couple of years ago, and it didn't it, it didn't work. And then and then my 40th anniversary came, and then Bob Eckstein came right. with the, the the book about footnotes, and my book came out, right. and and I became this person who what it's Matt's bookstore, right. and very. Ironically, last week I was in Berkeley seeing David Silverstein, the guy I bought the store from. Right. And he said, because uh, he had the bookstore for 10 years. And he said, after about eight years, I realized it was David's bookstore. And I wanted to do something else. It took me about 38 years <laughs> for it to become Matt's bookstore. And I don't want to do anything, anything else. else. And, and uh, so the audience can appreciate this. Uh, just recently, uh, there was a Expedia, the travel company, had a reader's poll. On, it wasn't a, it wasn't was a reader's poll. No, no. It was, it was Expedia, Expedia, the travel giant, right. said, why do people travel? Well, they did a survey, that's okay. your poll, and 78% said they were interested in literature, or literature got them interested in where they were going. So they said, well, let's look at those literary spots around the world. Right. And they identified 20 of them? 20, the top 20 literary destinations in the world. And number two was Prague. Right. Number one was the nexus between Concord, Amherst, and Lenox, Massachusetts. Right. <laughs> That's pretty cool. And, and when they talked about the literary tradition, because 
uh, Melville and so many other authors lived in the area, wrote about the area. And then they mentioned Edith Wharton, who's the first woman to win a Pulitzer Prize. Pulitzer Prize, right, right. right. And uh, her home, the Mount, which is classic. uh, Classic architecture, which she designed and lived in for a number of years. And so they they featured uh, Edith Wharton and the Mount, and they featured the bookstore and Matt Tannenbaum. (laughs) This is is a generational carry-through. Right. This is this is wild. so. It's a very nice honor to to uh, be recognized as part of that nexus of that Concord Amherst Lennox and and literary destination and all the other. You know, I looked through the other destinations and Prague and um, whatever other destinations they. I can't remember now right offhand what they were, but they all have many bookstores. Right. Lennox only has one. And, and, and the writer was, was good enough to say, uh, the bookstore, so Edith Wharton's The Mound, visit, make sure you visit Edith Wharton's The Mound. And the bookstore, called the bookstore, is a great community resource or a community. Charming, I think charming, charming. charming community, uh, central. Right. Uh, uh, whose owner has invited his clients to get lit. lit. At the at the in house on the on house on site wine bar, so she put it very concisely. Get lit at the wine bar, and so she got it. Right. And I have to write her a thank you note. I have to find out where she, how to how to get to her, and it's just marvelous. So the, the future for the bookstore is brighter than ever. More Absolutely. Accolades. And uh, you're the, still there like a sitting duck. The town the town itself was voted one of the best small towns in America. A couple of years ago, by some other one of these travel travel right. things, and in in town we kind of laugh at this because we know the empty storefronts, right. and we know you can't get a sandwich for under eighteen dollars, right. and you know, uh, and, and all this. But to people from the outside, Lenox is this charming community, and I'm very happy to be in Lenox, Massachusetts. Uh, I don't live in Lenox. I live. I, I lived in Lenox for a couple of years. Sheila and I lived there for a couple of years. But I live in a couple of towns down in more South County. Lenox is the top of South County. Nobody from South County comes to visit me, or when they do, it's an occasion. So I get mostly Lenox and uh, some Stockbridge, and then a lot of out of town, and then repeat visitors. And one of the things I noticed in the last year and a half, since the election of 2016. I never really paid attention. The way I display books is I choose the books and I display them by the color of their cover because you put a light cover next to a dark cover and both of them stand out. And I can't tell you how many bookstores I go into. I don't go to that many because I don't like them. And, and like, there are three dark books next to each other. I said, what are they thinking? What are they thinking? What do they know? And so, and I would, sometimes I'd put them together by a, uh, a topic, maybe two books, maybe two books by the same author. Uh, but it was always a random way of my, this is, this is what I'm liking these days. Right. This, is, this right. is who I am. Right. This is, I, I was completely naked. It turns out, after the election, that... The choice of my books, people, people were more, people have been be, been more desperate since the election, and they come in and they look for 
not just a, not a message, but comfort. Right. There's hope. And 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 what I display answers that. And I didn't realize how important that was to people. Before that, it was just not fun, but it was more <clears throat> more caprice. Just this was this was here. I'm going to put these guys here, and 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 we and the comment we get from 98 out of 96 people is, I see books here I never see anywhere else, because we have books that I think are good, whether they sell or not. Well, they do sell because I have them out for sale and people buy them, but they're not on the bestseller list. Right. You know, there is. Um, I saw a great copy, a first edition of the Ordways today, at at uh, Bart's Books. The Ordways was written by uh, a Texas writer who I happened to meet because he lived nearby one day. And he told me all about his books, and uh, uh, publishers have reprinted them in paperback now. And periodically, I'll take a book like The Ordways by Bill Humphrey that nobody's heard of. It came out in 1956 or something, right? And it's on the, it's on the table. Or The Fathers by Alan Tate came out in 1936. But it's a, it's a book. So if if you're interested in a book, somebody says, "Do you have that book by Michael Shara on this on the get on Gettysburg?" I said, "That's a great book. Have you read Alan Tate's book?" And and so so there are many many books that I can uh, either have on the shelf. And Francis said, Francis, one of the things she said was, "Don't give them everything. Make them work for a little bit. Hide the treasures. Hide the treasures." She also said. If, if someone asks you for a book and you're not sure you have it, don't send them to the shelf. Walk them to the shelf. Right. Especially if you don't think you have it. Especially if you know you don't have it. Because you're going to be able to find something on the way for them. Now, that's a secret I shouldn't tell anybody. <laughs> <laughs> and that's why they keep coming back. Matt, this has been an absolute pleasure. I'm just thrilled. Uh, to sit down with you and, and talk books. Thank you so much. This is this is uh, you know this trip out west was to uh, learn uh, to 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 dig into my own memory about about the bookstore and find these stories that I want to tell. And you've given me this perfect opportunity right. to do that. Delightful. Thanks. How sweet. <laughs> okay. Mm-hmm.